Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans. And I'm Matt Smith. This is Season 2, Episode 3, these being the words of Marcus Tullius Cicero. It was written by Scott Buck and directed by Alan Poole. In this episode, Varinus begins a gang warfare in the Aventine, Sevilia steps up her feud with Attia, Cicero makes a stand the only way he knows how, and Antony violates a household pot plant. I don't remember the plant. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to tell me about that. Okay. Hello, Rhiannon. Hey, Matt. <laughs> how can you, you watched the episode this morning. Yeah. Do you not remember Mark Antony intimidating Cicero by taking MP in the pot plant next oh, to him? Oh, that. <laughs> I remembered the pot, but not the plant. Okay. <laughs> the plant remembers, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the plant is no more, I imagine. Uh, okay, so uh, what did you think of this episode, Rhiannon? Well, I'm not a fan of the whole crime lord business, so, yeah. you know, the mafiosi. I'm with you on that. That dominated a bit much for me. I thought it got a bit nastier than a lot of episodes, and I don't think it's just my squeamishness that makes me think they're driving that a bit hard. Mm. But I like that we get Brutus back. Yes. Despite the fact that he's in a mess. Yeah, yeah. I think he's got to go that way first, though. And... I like that Octavian's not here because I feel like we're building up. I think Cicero gets treated really badly. And I will talk about why I think Cicero deserves a bit more respect than he's given in this episode. Yeah, yeah. I liked this episode. I think I liked more things than I disliked. I did like the way that they're taking Mark Antony. And I think that the actor who plays Mark Antony, James Purefoy, is just eating up the screen every time he's on it. And... He looks like he's having a fun time, which is good. Even when he's not having fun. I don't like what they're doing with Varinus, but I can see why they need to take him to a dark place. This isn't the dark place that I would have taken him, but everything he's gone through with the death of his wife and his family being killed but not killed but kidnapped. Well, he doesn't even know that at this mm. point at the end of this episode. I can see why he would need to kind of lose himself. Not great viewing, ultimately, with that part, but yeah. In terms of, you know, looking at ancient Rome, I'm not sure that I have anything to comment on from the point of view of Roman sources, except as a viewer of yeah. a drama, I feel like we've been there with Varinus a bit too long. Yeah. That's, that's very unsympathetic, doesn't it? <laughs> Just get over it, Varinus. I don't mean that at all. He was somebody that we really resonated with in the first series, and that's harder. And yes. I guess that's deliberate, you know, making him a mafia boss. We're not going to empathize so much with him. And they have given us reasons for that. And he's had all these terrible personal tragedies. Mm. And I guess maybe that drives him back to where he goes at the end of it, this episode. I think now we empathize more with Pullo yeah, than we do with Verenus. And, you know, Pullo's very much becoming the anchoring heart kind of thing of this show. I think maybe I miss their interactions with those in power. Mm. I mean, I've always liked about this series that it wasn't just in a way that something like I, Claudius is about those in the top tier of society, that we get this other point of view from the, the soldier coming back and do they get drawn back into the army? How do they cope with their family? All of that. But at the same time, I guess while Caesar was alive, they had a lot more 
interaction with Roman history. And now it seems like their part of it has got more soapy. So we've got kind of two separate things going on. I'm sure they're coming back together. They will, yeah. yeah. Uh, But at the moment, they're a little bit disjointed. Yeah. Okay, I I can see why you would think of it as, as that way. Yeah, definitely. So now at this point of the podcast, we should play an interview. We've got an an interview to play with Alan Poole, who uh, is the director of this episode. I spoke to him last year because he also directed the episode Agiria, which is uh, episode six of season one. And at the time, he was in quarantine in Tokyo because he was about to film a project there, which is now called Tokyo Vice. And we talked about this episode. So we'll put that interview right here. The most unfortunate thing with season two was that it had always been planned to be five seasons. And then because of the cost overruns, they knocked it down to three. And then not too long before season two went into production, there was a big issue with a tax credit. Like, you know, when you work overseas, many countries that want to welcome film production, they have a tax credit. And there was an Italian tax credit that because of the complexities of working in Italy, where you never quite know exactly what's going on and the ground rules can change. HBO became convinced, I believe, that the tax credit was never going to come. And so they felt that they were deep into red ink more than they had wanted to be. And so there was a directive given before season two began that this is going to be the last season. And that put a huge burden on Bruno Heller because he had to get Augustus on the throne. So he had to take what he had planned as being two seasons worth of story and cram it into a single season. Mm. And I think that that kind of, the wheel is moving too fast and episodes are overstuffed feeling, you can feel it a little bit in parts of season two. But on the other hand, it was a more collegial set. I think, you know, the first season was fraught because it was new, because they had had the shutdown, because they had had changing of the guard. And in season two, the new producer who came in was John Melfi, who's an old friend of mine and whom I worked with before and is a great producer. And he and Bruno got along great. And for the first time, we actually had other writers on set that Bruno had a team of writers and he was able to hand off episodes to them, which was great because in season one, it was Bruno, Bruno, Bruno. I mean, there was basically nobody else around and it became, there was a huge amount of pressure on him. And now that he could delegate, I think it made the process a little bit less pressured. And then I was particularly happy that on these being the words of Marcus Gillis Cicero, the episode was written by Scott Buck, who had been one of our writers on every season of Six Feet Under, and with whom I had collaborated on a particularly, I guess, um, infamous episode of Six Feet Under, the episode where David gets carjacked. And Scott and I had collaborated on that. He wrote it, I directed it. So it was like stepping back into an old partnership. Mm. Um, so it the, the process was was very enjoyable. Yeah. You had a lot of cast changeover as well, I guess, at the mid-season kind of thing. So you, you haven't got Kieran playing Caesar. You haven't got Niobe anymore. All the characters are in completely different situations, which is a, a symptom of the show moving along quite a lot. And actually in the middle of your episode, it's like three months later, Mark Antony has left Rome. And if you're familiar with history, I, I don't want to make any assumptions. That's a particularly fluid point of Rome's history where nobody really knows where things are going to fall between mm. Mark Antony and Octavian. But there is just so much going on throughout the entire episode. I'm surprised yeah. that... Uh, you didn't need to stop and catch your breath with it. 
But like I was saying about season two as a whole, it's busy. Mm. So the kinds of let's slow the world down for some intimacy scenes that I was able to do, particularly in Egeria, or they just weren't part of the script this time. It was a, a little bit more watching the sweep of history. But I did get to work with David Bamber, who plays Cicero, mm. who was a fantastic actor I hadn't worked with in season one. And Alan Leach, who went on to become very famous on Downton Abbey, has that small scene when he comes as a suitor to Octavia. Uh, uh, yeah, playing and, a gripper. That's that's his first episode as a gripper. Yeah, yeah, yeah as a gripper, yeah. Yeah. I was watching and that so, last night, and they're going, that's Tom. That's Tom from Downtown Abbey. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, that's Tom. But we didn't know that then. He was, he, was, he was young, and he was fresh, and now you look back, and it's Tom. Mm. Uh, were you involved in his casting then, since this is his first episode? Uh, yeah. I wasn't able to go to London for casting on this one, but it was we were looking at tapes and uh, from Nina Gold, and, yeah, I was part of the decision-making process. Yeah. So... What from this episode jumped out to you? I mean, uh, the ones from from my perspective are um, some great fight scenes. Very explicit rape in this episode (laughs) with a a man being dunked upside down in the toilet and also uh, a great scene in the Senate. So I'd like to get a bit of perspective on your highlights. Well, there was the epic fight scene that just sort of goes on and on that had to be really intimately choreographed. Is that uh, Um, the Verena Simpolo one? The Verena Simpolo fight, yeah. Mm. And so that was days of rehearsal with Kevin and Ray and then figuring out exactly which shots had to be done by the stunt performers Mm. because you can't shoot it in sequence. So that was the first time I'd ever had to break down a long and elaborately choreographed fight scene into pieces and put it together. And also because ultimately there's a wow factor. I mean, at the end, they fall through the ceiling. So setting up that stunt was, was tremendous and was a lot of fun. And we knew... We could only do it twice. Uh, we couldn't afford to, to rebuild the floor. Big floor. <laughs> yep. Couldn't do it. And so all of that was great fun. Also, the one thing I loved about the fight, though, was that it's best friends. It's soulmates who are fighting. And so it's not a battle fight where you're fighting against an, uh, you know, an unknown enemy who's the villain and it's just pyrotechnics and you know, just the, the logistics of the fight. It was actually a really emotional fight between them. And it was meant to be spiritually and physically exhausting for them. And that fight scene was something that was the result of a lot of effort. And it was one of the bigger stunts that we did on the show when they the, the big fall through the through the floor. So I was very proud of that. Mm. And those guys were so great. And so being able to work with uh, with Kevin and Ray who were so great with each other to make it mean something, even why they, they had to do all this fight choreography was really very satisfying. Mm. It was one of the things I was proud of in the episode. And then the other thing, well, the rape that you're talking about with Rafi Gavron, I'm trying to remember the character's name, the young guy, that was just really difficult because Rafi didn't want to do it. There was a lot of negotiation about how much we could do in a take and how many takes, and it became very, it became contentious only because he was so uncomfortable being depicted that way. Right. Because Rafi was also young and had only done a couple of shows. Yeah. And, you know, and he was a young heartthrob, and young heartthrobs sometimes don't want to be depicted as being sodomized uh, against their will. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. I can't. I don't want to generalize. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then... But, I mean, that's the, understandable. The Senate, yeah, yeah. The Senate scene was a real joy because ultimately it's a very... It's very simple in the script. It's just that, you know, the Senate comes into session and then the clerk steps up to read this statement from Cicero. And then as he's reading it... Um, you can see the color drain from his face. 
Yes. Well, that's why we had Alan Cordner is such a great actor. Um, he knows that he's stuck doing this thing and all the senators begin to tiptoe out. Yes. And finally, he's just left with Anthony and not knowing, you know, where Anthony is going to direct his wrath. So shooting it was great fun because, again, we were able to uh, choreograph it and the, the sense of all those senators being there and then like beginning to leave one by one and then it's a trickle and then it's a flood. Mm-hmm. And we were able to play so much of the tension of it just comes from the performance of, of Alan as the clerk because, you know, this is a man who has done a lot of Beckett on the stage in London and he knew how to tell us the whole story while reading words that uh were not actually connected to him. And then, of course, James's reaction, and then the great fun is that he gets to, I mean, I say fun, but he gets bludgeoned to death. <laughs> to actually, so there's something about the irony of that he actually takes the rod from the scroll yeah, yeah. to beat him with. Yes. That it's that, you know, beating, it's that classic. Beating him with Cicero's words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's symbolic. It's kind of classic. It has, I think, an element of kind of macabre humor to it. And then I got to do that great crane shot at the end where we pull back as Anthony finishes. So that was just, I remember that as a great day. And there weren't complicated emotional stakes to the scene. It was just about the difficulty of the situation. It was really fun. The David Bamba scene that you did have was just an amazing bit of subtle threatening, complete with Mark Antony uh, peeing in a pot plant next to Cicero (laughs) just to throw him off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was scripted, but it was um, both actors had tremendous fun with that. You only need that scene to understand why Cicero does what he does Mm. at the end of the episode. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the the dynamic between them and the chemistry that they have is just great. And the the subtle threats and the the nervous tics that Cicero seems to get while he's delivering all of that. So, yeah, all really good stuff. The other thing that I really liked about this episode, you've got that whole um, storyline running underneath this episode of Sevilla trying to get the servant to poison Atia. So you've got a, a really yeah. young, boyish, good-looking servant yeah. seducing the cook and trying to subtly poison it, which kind of calls back to every I, Claudius storyline that you've got there as well with the, the attempts to poison food. Yeah, this is all coming back to me, now, <laughs> the poisoning scene and and the girl walking with the tray yeah. being so terrified the whole time. That was um, that was a great set to work on. And also that the servant was she was fantastic. It was very kind of Hitchcockian to me that just seeing how her face as she's carrying that tray forward, you get the whole story of what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's one of the very few episodes of Rome that explicitly ends on a cliffhanger. That was probably... Scott Buck trying something. I I hadn't realized that that's so unorthodox for the show to do that. And especially a cliffhanger that you don't pick up with in the next episode. Mm. So did you have a lot to do to get the story from point A to point B then? Because uh, I'm specifically talking here about the three-month transition partway through the episode. And um, it seems like the the story having a lot of catch-up to do in between there. I think the other actor that I really uh, liked in this, and he only had a couple of scenes, and I'm trying to remember his name, the guy playing Brutus. Oh, Tobias. Tobias Tobias Menzies. I mean, Tobias is such an amazing and resourceful actor, and he's finally come into his own because now everybody knows him as Prince Philip on The Crown. Mm. He's also in that Scottish time-travelling show, which I can never remember the name of. Or he was at one point. Outlander? There we go. Thank you. Yeah. Outlander, yeah. (laughs) No, he's been... I mean, he's a tremendous actor who appears everywhere but has been 
I feel he's finally landed a role that he will be identified with. Mm. I think what he brought to the role starting in season one was this sense of vulnerability with Brunus's intelligence and perception mm. that those qualities actually make him vulnerable because the more successful characters in terms of their own advancement, like Antony or like even Octavian, are people who can just do and Brutus is the thinker, but the fact that what Tobias brings to it so beautifully is is the awareness of how the qualities that he is prized for also leave him vulnerable. Mm. Mm. And he has that amazing scene in the episode where he takes his horse to the stream and gets in the water naked and has that kind of epiphany moment. And I think that was uh, kind of a high point for Tobias. I, I saw that as a, a baptism almost. But yeah, it reaches for something beyond just literally being what it is. Yeah. I don't think he's meant to be Christ-like, but showing that he is one of the most spiritually alive characters in the piece. That can't have been fun to film, though. I'm very glad that you like the shot, but to be completely candid, because of the lo- the way the schedule was and the location was, that's the one scene in that episode that I didn't shoot. <laughs> It it had to happen after I left Rome. We set it up and we talked through it and I talked to Tobias about it, but the actual shooting of it was done by one of the other directors. So, Um, and I remember that it was a real joy to shoot in Italy. The rules are different. Like everything in Italy, the crews work on the basis of feeling and friendliness. Protecting human values is the most important thing to them. It's more important than money. So that when we do overtime in the UK or the US, or I would guess in Australia, it's just a question of you do overtime and the crew makes a lot more money and some of them like it because they're working long hours, but they're making a lot more money. Mm. And in, in Italy, it doesn't work that way. You can't go over your 12 hours. You come in at 7 a.m. and everybody says hello and kisses each other for the first 10 or 15 minutes of your day. And as a director, you're looking at your watch and saying, this is my time, I want to rehearse. Um, But that's how they do it. And then they take a full hour for lunch, usually includes some wine. And then when you get to 7 p.m., everybody goes home. And if you're in the middle of a setup or you want to get two more takes, you have to bargain with the crew. And it's not about payment. They want to go home to their families. Yeah, It's such a humane way of working, but you, as a director, you want to get the shot. So you have to go to the crew and there's designated foreman and you have to say, I need this shot because, and if we come back tomorrow, I won't be able to get it because I have to, we have to move to that stage. And can you please give me 15 minutes or give me 20 minutes mm. to get the shot? And if it's not happening on a regular basis and they like you, they will say yes. And if, um, if it's your third time that week to ask for it, they'll just say no and you don't get your shot. So I remember that finishing that fight sequence in the bar there, that was, um, it was one of those times where I ran out of time and I had to throw myself at the mercy of the crew. And they were, of course, very generous about it. And I, and I got to do the second take of the shot. Okay, that was my interview there with Alan Poole. And we'll start our look at this episode by breaking it down, essentially, you know, storyline to storyline and, and taking it through there. So if we start with Varinus, who has a problem with gang warfare in the Aventine said in the last episode that he was the son of Hades and that he was going to intervene and take control of things and this was at Antony's request and now is running a pub we're introduced to a few of the characters who are going to keep cropping up so we've got Mascius who used to be a member of the 13th who's now one of the heavies I guess who goes along with Varinus a lot more Pullo trying to be the good angel on Varinus's shoulder and uh, make him see a peaceful kind of way to get through everything and then a man comes 
and petitions Varinus. Can I call it that? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, petitions Varinus. In a Roman context, that would make sense. Yeah, on on behalf of one of his friends or somebody in a rival gang or something who has a 12-year-old nephew who's been prostituting himself in the Aventine and essentially wants vengeance. He wants somebody taken care of for taking advantage of this 12-year-old. The boy took money. He was working as a prostitute. Quintus Bubo's committed no offence. You won't touch him. Brother Varinus, perhaps you misunderstand. I misunderstand nothing, brother. I've been given a strict mandate by Mark Antony to maintain the peace. Quintus Bubo is a man of property and respect. You will not touch him. Yeah, I mean, Varinus reads it as, well, if he accepted money, then there's nothing wrong here. Mm. That's a transaction, basically. It's not clear to me, and they don't make it clear, whether this was, in Roman terms, consensual, that he was prostituting himself or he was just given money afterwards. Yeah. So that's one level of it. That never becomes clear. In Roman context, there's not an age of consent. So the 12-year-old aspect of it, which is just despicable to us, doesn't apply. What does apply and is also not made clear is that if this boy is a freeborn child of Roman citizens, then it's a huge problem. Okay. That his body is used in this way. If he's a slave or a child of slaves, even of ex-slaves, then it's less of an issue for the Romans. Right? So it's all about status. Yeah. And that isn't made clear in this interaction. And maybe it wouldn't have made sense in terms of the drama. The point of setting it up is that... Varinus is unwilling to intervene because he sees it as very transactional. And I guess I'm trying to think my way into, well, I am a modern audience member, but I think that they're trying to make Varinus look hard, Mm. whereas there is a moral context to it for the people petitioning. The moral context for them speaks to us more directly, that this young child should be protected. For a Roman petitioner, they would be talking about he's a child of a Roman citizen. All right. He's still wearing the bulla, which is this little necklace with a charm on it that protects a child. That's one of the things it protects a child against, their bodily integrity. It didn't really work for me in the Roman context. One of the things they were trying to get across, I guess, is that there isn't this same squeamishness about children and sex in the way that we have. They don't regard the 12-year-old as a child, really. Yeah. Although they are, technically, particularly if he's a citizen. He doesn't get the toga of manhood until he's about 16, 17, which I think we saw Octavian getting. Yeah, we did, yeah, way back when. Yeah. So um, if you were in Varinus's shoes, would you go, yeah, these guys have a good argument, I'm going to step in here? Or? Well, I'd ask more questions about, well, maybe I'd know just by looking at the people there what their status was as citizens. Well, let's just say, you know, this guy who is Appius, I think his name was, is a not a Roman citizen. Did they have illegal aliens in Rome? Oh, yeah. yeah okay. Well, not illegal, no. But you know what I mean, you know, somebody who just... Non-citizens, yeah. plenty of them. He's I, certainly dressed in a way that suggests he's something else. I don't know what. Yeah, okay. It's a very strange kind of garb. I think he would ask more questions about status or maybe it would be obvious to him by the appearance of the person. Either way, I think that it's not a moral argument as such as a status argument. Mm. So I guess Varinus would take his part if... He were a person, a family with some status, some some footing in Rome. Otherwise, he probably wouldn't know, Yeah, which is pretty harsh to think of. Okay. But I think it's framed quite differently for a modern audience's eyes. Yeah. That's what I think. Do, do you think that's what's going on, that, that it's meant to make us think that Varinus has become kind of hardened? He's not sympathizing with those who are weak and vulnerable? Uh, yeah, 
I think Varinus also knows who this guy is who is bringing him this problem and knows his citizenship status okay. and is just, you know, gone, no, look, he was paid, we're done. You know, you might be offended with what happened because of your sensibilities. The person you're accusing, not even accusing, but who took advantage of this 12-year-old is Quintus Bulbius, has done nothing wrong. And I think Varinus even says that this is Quintus Bulbius is somebody who has standing in Rome. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, you're right. That yeah. point is made and his status would make a difference, certainly, mm. which is quite hard for us to think into that mindset so maybe they are kind of playing the roman status game yeah and meanwhile pullo is speaking for us pullo stands up and goes oh well maybe you know you know he's just a lad maybe we should go and do something about this mump and situation the other part of this is that because they framed it as this kind of mob gang situation yeah it's not claiming to follow the codes of roman law so if your child or a child of your family who is meant to be inviolate, is uh, abused in this way, then you could take that to court. But this is not really a court, is it? Ver- no. I'm ne- not clear on v- what Varinus's position is anymore. He had been a magistrate, but now he's a son law. of Hades. Oh, he'd been a senator as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So they're not even claiming to play by Roman law codes. Mm. So maybe I shouldn't be uh, splitting hairs here. Yeah. So the next way that this storyline develops is... Uh, You've got a very weird scene where Quintus Bulbio, rather than seeking medical attention because he's been gelded, is brought before. <laughs> I think it's I think it's weird that you didn't find this scene funny. I find it funny, just because it's so bizarre. Is brought before Varinus with his front privates covered in blood, so something's happened there. Rather than going to seek medical attention with his wailing wife. Uh, announcing the way, you know, saying we need justice for what's happened here to, to Quintus Bulbio. We won't worry about taking him to the doctor. No, straight to Varinus. I'm surprised they didn't plonk the evidence down on the table and go, you deal with that. Didn't you find that a bizarre scene when you really think about it? Knowing what Roman medicine was like, I'm not sure that there would have been much help. But also, it's a context in which showing trauma and harm is the evidence. I mean, that is the evidence if we're taking Varenus as a quasi-magistrate here. Mm. It's important that he see what has happened directly. Yeah, in our terms, yeah, you get an ambulance and you get the medical attention immediately. But I suppose it sort of makes sense in terms of displaying to the person with legal power. Yeah, yeah. Okay, look, rewrite of the scene. No offence, Scott Buck. Wailing wife comes in without the husband covered in blood, plonks a bucket in front of Varinus and goes, look in there at what they did to my husband. And then you get Varinus's reaction. You don't see the gory details, but you see Varinus's reaction. It's fine. Yeah. If you want to redo it. Could have been an Emmy moment there, <laughs> you know? Instead, it just came off really comical for me. Anyway, so Varinus's ruling in this place is that, look, I told Memio and Appius no. They've now gone against my wishes. I need to go and deal with this problem or send my men to go and deal with this problem. Yeah, I think it's interesting that for Varinus, I mean, you could see a connection here with those elite roles is that it's become about honour and authority. Yeah, Yeah. that's the word. It's not about right and wrong. It's about I say this and they did something different. So he really has become a mobster, if it weren't already clear. And so that man is punished. We don't need to go into that. Do we? I really liked seeing the Roman toilet. Can I just say that? And we'll 
keep going. And then that essentially at this point of the episode culminates into what they want to get it towards, which is the Aventine at the end of the episode, a burning, smoking ruin and pushing mm-hmm. apart Verena and Pullo. They have quite a good fight in the brothel slash bar, mm-hmm. as in we don't, when you think about it, often see fights to that extent. We saw a beatdown a couple of episodes ago between Anthony and Octavian, which was kind of brutal, but this was a lot more on, you know, even footing, mm. although I'd put my money on Pullo any day, I think, between those two. There was no real winner in this fight, except for the viewers. No one wins in a civil war. Jump cut to the end of the episode, Pullo comes back, finds Lydie. Lydie says, one, I'm blind, and two, Varinus's children are alive. Lady? <laughs> I'm lady. I'm lady. But you're all right. You're all right? Where have you the been? The children. The children are alive. Okay, so that's the end of that storyline. We're just going to kind of leave that there because that is what it is. It was very dramatic. There were things to watch. But as far as delving into the history books, not a lot was happening in that circumstances, was it? No. I mean, which has been to a certain extent the case from the beginning because these characters are, you know, they turn up a couple of times in Caesar's Gallic Wars, but they have no written history apart from that, which Mm. is what gives the writers the freedom to give them a storyline. What did you think about Irene in particular? So this is Pullo's wife pushing around her ex-slave status. (laughs) Yeah, I guess so. I thought she was getting cold-shouldered by the others in the pub. Yeah, but that's because that lady, Gaia, is a slave. That is a good point, that there would be tensions between current and ex-slaves, and Mm. she kind of has a bit more status because she's... She is actually married to Polo now, isn't she? Yeah. In invidious position, really. She's between statuses. Not surprised that she wants to leave. And apparently then has to go all the way to Macedonia and back again, which is no mean feat. It's a long way. Yeah, I know. That would have taken quite a long time. All because uh, Pullo wanted to talk to Varinus. I reckon he got all the way there, made up his mind to come back, straight away came back. My God, she has to be patient to put up with him. Let's take the story now to Octavia. Octavia smoking drugs. (laughs) I think we talked about this before with um, Cleopatra, didn't we? Oh, we maybe did, yeah. And I think we decided then that there was no real evidence for it. Yeah, well, I looked into it this time. There's still no real evidence from the last time we recorded. (laughs) Yeah, and I I think maybe it's just meant to suggest a kind of extravagance, self-indulgence. I don't know. I'm not really sure what they're going for there. Octavia has this unsuitable friend now anyway, Jocasta. Yes. Which is a Greek name. I'm not sure whether they intend us to think about that. She's a a tradesman's daughter. A tradesman's daughter, daughter. yes. Yeah, how dare she. It was a bit, I don't know, Downton Abbey, upstairs, downstairs. I think they're going for either Regency romance or um, comedy of manners-ish, wasn't it? Yeah. It seemed to sort of stray a bit outside what they've done mostly quite well with Roman characterizations, you know, people in certain levels. Yeah. It's true that Artia's daughter hanging out with a tradesman's daughter is pretty unlikely, but I think it's unlikely anyway, let alone Artia coming and appearing snobby. Yeah, yeah. Antony 
says that he's going to be sent to Macedonia at the end of his consulship, which he seems quite happy with. He does. This doesn't really gel with the Antony that I know from <laughs> Emperors of Rome. Yeah. <laughs> See I, our other podcast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've, we've been looking into this recently and Antony's not happy with that from the beginning. All the evidence we have mm. is that he, he wants somewhere much more strategic and he wants Gaul, which he's going to want by the end of this episode. Yeah. But yeah. he gets talked into that. By Atia. Um, by Atia, rather than just wanting it himself. All because she doesn't want to go to Macedonia. No, because she... she's been told there's nothing there. It's uncivilized. <laughs> it's amazing to think that that leads to a civil war. It's all down to Atia uh, not I mean, wanting it... to go to a dumpy province. It is a way, I'm not sure it's a very good way, it is a way of getting the women more involved in the politicking. We've seen a lot of Atia and Servilia in particular playing who will kind of get Caesar's allegiance, you know, who will get his protection, those kind of battles and Servilia pushing Brutus down a certain path. But this seems like Atia making a decision for a fairly trivial reason. Yeah. So I'm not sure I can quite get behind that. Uh, look, it's it's kind of typical of the Atia that we know at this point, I think. Maybe. And look, I think in a way... Maybe this had been thought out from the beginning, but they've sort of tied themselves into a bit of a not having Mark Antony and Atia Definitely. as a, cu- a couple. Yeah, I'm not no, sure if you yeah. call them a couple. They're a couple, yeah. Yeah, you know, I can see why they wanted to do that. And Atia is obviously a conflation of several Republican women who were supposed to have kind of extravagant and... Yeah, you're meant to have your Atia, you're meant to have your, your full year and yeah. yeah, yeah. But because we know so much about Mark Antony's affairs... They're going to have to somehow shoehorn Atia around that history. Mm. So it becomes a bit awkward at parts. Yeah, I can see very much how that's playing out there. We get a scene with Antony and Cicero, and I can see the broad brush strokes of history Mm. coming through uh, from what we know was happening during this time. So Cicero is praising Octavian, saying that he's full of vim and vigor. And we know that at this point that... Cicero considered Octavian an ally and Mm. was working in his interests, kind of, so that that kind of checked out. Yes, a surprising boy, isn't he? Hmm? Octavian. Such vim and vigour for one so young. They say it's a considerable army he's raised. And buying up all the fools and cripples in Campania is hardly raising an army. (laughs) You are right, no doubt. But many veterans also. Eighth Legion men. Seventh Legion. Sat on their backsides, taking his money to cheer him as he goes by. Caesar, my ass. <laughs> but I didn't bring you here to talk of children. Indeed. I await your pleasure. I liked that, but at the same time, I don't think Octavian is at the point that we would expect him to be. What do you mean by that? Not at the point we expect him to be. You know, if we saw him in this episode with a giant army. Ah, okay. With I, vim and vigor, rather than a little upstart, which is what Mark Antony thinks of him as. It's interesting to get those two points of view voiced by others and not seeing Octavian at the moment. Mm. You're quite right, we're not seeing him, so I guess we only hear about him third hand. Yeah. We do have letters from Cicero to his friend Atticus where he mentions he's getting letters from Octavian during this time period. Mm. And it's clear that Octavian is trying to court him and trying to get him on side. He's sort of 
treating him very respectfully, saying things like, uh, with your advice, I will do this. Can you talk to the Senate for me? I don't want to do anything without your say-so or your friendship. He's definitely in communication with him. Mm. And Cicero, at least, is playing up that Octavian is, is somebody who is looking to Cicero for leadership at this point. Yeah, yeah. So you can see why Cicero might be portraying Octavian in that way in a sympathetic light. It's not going to end up like that, but at the moment, Cicero might think of him as an ally. So Antony does his best to intimidate Cicero in this scene to the point mm. of peeing in a pot plant right next to his head. And I think if I get the subtle acting right, I'm ruining Cicero's drink in the process, I think. <laughs> I think there might have been a bit of splash damage there. But props to Cicero for essentially saying, I'm not going to be intimidated unless you actually outright threaten me. Mm. He wants to say, be able to say that Antony threatened me rather than accept a bribe. I guess there's some sort of moral standing that he's trying to make here. Okay. Yeah. Actually, you've made me rethink the scene now a little bit. I saw Cicero as intimidated and kind of making his stand when he's far away. No, no. He's offered a bribe. Mm. There's the insinuation of a threat. You know, it would be terrible if something happened to you kind of threat. Mm. But he actually says, you know, no, I'm not going to go along with anything that you say here because I think that this is all wrong. You do not deserve gall. And if you want to threaten me, you're going to have to threaten me. I saw Cicero as being brave in his own way here Mm. because every way that the actor David Bamber was portraying this was being supremely uncomfortable with Mm. the scene and being very intimidated, but having too much morals to give into that initial feeling. So I thought it was great. The threat that Mark Antony finally pulls out of his hat was just like so pulls out of his toga was so good. It was the threat of what happened to Crassus can very easily happen to you. Please go on. Make your threats. I don't like to submit to mere implication. There is a question I've always wanted to ask you. Your old friend Crassus, when he was captured by the Parthians, is it true that they poured molten gold down his throat because that would really sting. Did the Parthians really pour molten gold down Crassus's throat? Yeah. Well, everyone knows that because it's, you know, a sensational and awful way that a, a Roman general was killed. We know that that is true from historical sources, or certainly one version of it. Mm. So he's suggesting that could happen to him, to yes. Cicero. I guess what I was thinking is we have so much evidence that Cicero never even appeared intimidated by Mark Antony. I guess we don't have evidence of them having a scene together. What we have is Cicero's withering and excoriating attacks on Antony. So it seems like he would never have shuddered around him, never been intimidated, whatever Antony had said. Mm. He knows how to take him down. And I kind of wish we'd got a bit more of that, you know, that we'd got some of the speeches. Oh, definitely, yeah. We don't get to see him as an orator, and it's a bit of a shame. We do get some indications of it, Mm. but not the standing there 
giving it all. It very much makes the point that Mark Antony in this show has underestimated Cicero. Mm. He saw Cicero as somebody that he could bully mm-hmm. and manipulate and make him do his biddings, whether it be by bribery or by threat. Mm-hmm. And I guess by the end of the episode, it's quite evident that even though Cicero isn't making a stand himself, he's undermining Antony mm-hmm. the best way he knows how. Mm. With his words. Yeah, while saving his skin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is quite clever the way it's done. You're right. And I guess we have seen, we have evidence of the Mark Antony of this show directly inflicting violence on somebody of his status mm. that he won't hesitate to do that which i i really don't think we would have got from mark antony he will threaten by taking an army somewhere yeah. but he's not going to hit octavian yeah well so <laughs> word of that would have gotten to cicero mm. so now we get our first scene with a gripper yeah I was, I was really happy to see this. So this comes back to what you were saying before about Octavian kind of courting Cicero through letters, maybe, uh, except it's happening in person. And Agrippa turns up to petition on behalf of Octavian for allies, essentially. Comes into Rome, can I say, in the dead of night. It seems like he, he doesn't want his appearance in Rome known. Although it's very clear later on that it is known. Antony knows he's there. He's got his spies. Worst kept secret. Atia, bitch, sends a messenger to go and tell Antony that Agrippa's there. But he already knows, right? He already knew. Of course he knew. But it says a lot about Atia at this point and that she wants to be closely allied to Antony Mm. and sees as throwing all in with Antony even against her own son. Yeah, she says, I have no son. Yeah, I have no son. Send to tell Antony that Marcus Agrippa is in the city. Martha, no! Who knows what Antony will do to him? Nothing pleasant, I would think. He is your son's friend! I have no son. I think that's pretty unlikely too. Not just because of the little we know about Atia, but family allegiances. Family allegiances, so yeah. Octavia likes what she sees. <laughs> that's just as well. And I like what I see. So this is Alan Leach, who I know from Downton Abbey fame. I can't believe you watched Downton Abbey. It's, it's one of the few shows that my wife and I can go, this is something we can watch together. <laughs> you know, I'm interested in Rome. I watch Star Trek. She watches reality TV show. We meet at Downton Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it brings you together. <laughs> Downton Abbey's quite good. Alan Leach, though, is, is keeping his Irish accent. He's a Dublin boy. That's been pretty clear throughout, I think. I mean, there's a lot of British accents in there, mm. which is has a tradition in Hollywood with Romans. But they haven't driven out other accents. We've had plenty of Italians playing yeah. minor roles. And I'm sure they're doing that to encourage us to think about this diversity. I just don't think they're bothered. within Rome. <laughs> I, think, I, think, yeah. I think you're giving them a bit too much credit. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, it makes no sense to, mm. to decide on a particular accent. The cut-class British accent is what the Romans have. Mm. It has no connection with it at all. Exactly. So. We get a scene with Brutus and Cassius. Yeah. They seem to be far out east. They're in Bithynia uh, trying to raise money, army and allies at And that this is point. made clear to us by the clothing of the Bithynians, which is really extravagant, isn't it? Mm. Was there a camel in this scene or did I imagine a camel? I think you might be right. I was more distracted by, and I think we were supposed to find this just so much of a weird demand, I would like to see a woman defiled by a baboon. Oh, yeah. Right. yeah. What, what the hell? That. I mean, I share Cassius's reaction in this, just, you know, like, really? Really? We're going to talk about that? Well, you know? I was watching it thinking if I was from Turkey, I'd sue. 
<laughs> this yeah. is the way we're going to be depicted. Bit of defamation there. <laughs> Brutus is turning to alcohol. He's in a state mm. and uh, he's looking bedraggled. You know, he's unshaven, his hair's growing long, which, again, I don't know if this is deliberate, but this is something you do when in mourning or if you've got a law case against you. And he, he could be mourning Caesar, for all we know. You well, know? he is yeah. kind of reenacting the, I murdered him, I had to murder him. Mm. It's like he's having, I don't know, hallucinations or something or talking to unknown people. Was he talking to a camel? Anyway, keep going. <laughs> It would have been good if he was, but I don't remember that he was. <laughs> I'm so glad to see Brutus again, who's one of my favourite characters yeah, yeah. in this series. Did you think you'd see so much of Brutus? <laughs> I did not. That was quite a shock. There <laughs> were two full frontals in this episode. Sometimes I think they're just trying to compensate for all of the naked women we saw in the first series. We saw Brutus and his genius. Okay, so <laughs> there's a lot of male nudity in this episode. Yeah. So what did you think about that scene besides, you know, enjoying the view of Brutus walking out into the water and praying to Janus? Janus is the god of doorways and of new beginnings, January. Because I took this as, you know, the two-face, which he is, but he's also also doorways and... Is he, though? Is is Brutus two-faced? We could do a whole... But no, Janus is... Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I thought you meant that reflected um, some kind of hypocrisy on the part of Brutus. Well, I guess he's killed the person who was his mentor. Yeah. So he's got this divided mind. Yeah. But I think what he's trying to do, and it works for us from the point of view, especially going into water, that you cleanse yourself and you're a new, this kind of baptismal, isn't it? Yeah, but I, uh, I can't... Which is not how the Romans yeah, were yeah, sort of Yeah, that's kind of what I'm coming back to. But, but then they had bath buildings where they were cleansed, I suppose. Yeah, the fact that he brings up Janus makes sense. I don't have firm evidence for it, but this idea of a new beginning of, yeah. you know, the past being behind you and looking forward, mm. it might be a bit corny but it makes sense okay so before we get to, to cicero's finale there is developments between sevilla and atia almost so continuing <laughs> continuing the feud between those two highborn women who have nothing better to do although atia is not so much continuing the feud at this point She's probably got too much to worry about. Yeah. Atia has become so dependent upon Mark Antony that it worries me. Mm. I completely do not know where Atia's storyline is going to go at this point. Oh, okay. Yeah. Me I, either. I, I've, I've blanked on that memory. Okay. Well, we'll find out together. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's heaps, but uh, Sevilla has employed a young man, Duro, to kill Atia, but the means seem to be through poisoning. Mm. Very explicit that Octavia is not harmed, though, which makes Mm. it all the more difficult to do. Yeah. So it has to be while Octavia's out with a new friend. Mm. I wondered if he was called Duro because in some kind of ironic way, because it means hard, but he's called a pretty boy. And Mm. he's a pretty boy. Okay. (laughs) I don't know. It's Italian as well. So I think they'd know. And it's like our word durable. Look, probably, yeah. I didn't find very realistic his demand that Servilia kiss him and the fact that Servilia did it. Yeah. She really had to, I mean, it, maybe it's meant to show her desperation to get rid of Artia. She's prepared to even go that far. I think it says a lot about Duro because he knows how much he's needed here and what he's doing. Entitled little brat. Yeah. How costly <laughs> it is to Sevilla if mm. this sort of thing got yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. He's, so he has power over her. Yeah, and he's right. not used to having that sort of power, I guess. So he's making the most of it. Wait. Give me a kiss before I go. Excuse me. Kiss me. 
don't think so. You want this woman dead? Kiss me. I mean, he's prepared to do a lot, and he's also flirting with the slave girl in the kitchen, yeah. Althea, who I just noticed, well, she hasn't been in it before, I think, but she wears a collar. It's not exactly what I'd call a slave collar because it's leather, and it says Artia on it. So, you know, Oh, property she, of? It just says Artia. Yeah. But I have to say, compared to what we know of slave collars being metal, that it'd be very firmly attached to a slave's neck. The leather looked very easy to cut and therefore pointless, but I guess it just identifies her. Maybe she's not really a flight risk, but it's not nearly as tough as, as the slave collars we have evidence for. Mm. And the episode actually ends on this storyline with a, uh, a poison soup bowl being taken out to Atia. Will it or won't it? Neither of us remembers, clearly. It's very Livia. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. The whole poisoning. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. The last bit of this episode that we will talk about is kind of like the the big set piece, I guess, and it's what this episode takes its name from. Antony turns up to the Senate expecting to get the honours that he wants, that Cicero is going to nominate, that he gets Gaul instead of Decimus Brutus, and yet Cicero has left Rome in a litter, off to join Octavian, which I thought was interesting, and has left a surprise for him. Yes, he's left a speech to be read out. Then by all means, let us hear the words of mighty Cicero. These being the words of Marcus Tullius Cicero. When I was a young man, I defended our state. As an old man, I shall not abandon it. I give sincere thanks to Mark Antony, who has generously presented me with the most promising theme imaginable. (laughs) I address you directly, Antony. Please listen as if you... as if you... Go on. Please listen as if you were sober and intelligent and not a drink-sodden, sex-addled wreck. So this speech seems to encapsulate the many speeches that Cicero wrote, some of which he delivered against Antony Mm. in the Senate that we call the Philippics, because he modelled himself on Demosthenes, who was a Greek orator who made speeches against King Philip of Macedon. He initially wrote one and called it Philippics, and then he wrote 14, I think, in all. What we have here seems to draw on the second Philippic, which was issued as a pamphlet, not actually given as a speech. Yes, so... He delivered probably the first Philippic in front of Antony and Antony probably gave his rebuttal, which is potentially (laughs) the sort of thing that we've seen in this episode. And the second Philippic he was not in Rome to deliver. But the bits and pieces of the speech that is delivered by the unlucky man who unrolls the scroll, who I don't think we're ever given the name of, and he doesn't even have a name in the credits, the bits that he reads out, while it's not the exact text from the Philippics, it's kind of leaning on those kind of things that happened. Yeah, that characterization of Antony as drunken and sex-addled, as he puts it here, mm. immoderate in every way, is exactly the characterization of the second Philippic. And it is rare a man can boast of becoming bankrupt before he even came of age. Uh, that's something as well 
that happened to Antony or is generally attributed to happening to Antony. Can I just read a tiny bit from the second Philippic, chapter 18? Shall we examine your conduct from the time you were a boy? Let us begin at the beginning. Do you recollect that while you were still clad in the praetexta, that's the child's toga, you became a bankrupt? That was the fault of your father, you will say. I admit that. In truth, such a defense is full of filial affection, but it is peculiarly suited to your own audacity that you sat among the 14 rows of knights, though by Roscian law there was a place appointed for bankrupts. So he's sitting in the wrong place mm. when he was a bankrupt. You assumed the manly gown, so the grown-up toga, which you soon made a womanly one, first as a public prostitute with a regular price for your wickedness, and that not a low one. And it goes on in that vein. Yeah. I can see why they rewrote it for the episode. It's a lot yeah. catchier the way that they it presented is. it. <laughs> I just wanted to see Cicero delivering some of it. Yeah. You are certainly not without accomplishments. It is a rare man who can boast of becoming a bankrupt before even coming of age. You have brought upon us war, pestilence, and destruction. You are Rome's Helen of Troy. But then... But then... Go on. Go on. The man playing the senator who is delivering this speech, this is um, Alan Cordiner, and he's just credited as clerk, uh, not that he's a clerk. And I think that he does a, a very good job, but as much as I'm praising Cicero for these actions and taking quite a stand against Antony, he must have known that Antony would not react well and that this man is going to cop the brunt of the punishment in Cicero's name. I mean, the poor guy, he is, he is bludgeoned to death on the floor of the Senate. So yeah. we get another death in the Senate so soon after the last one. I'm surprised they had time to clean Caesar's blood off the tiles, you know, at this point. Good grief. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it does, it does resonate with that one. You're quite right. Yeah, I mean, I say this kind of thing wouldn't happen, but then you've pointed out to me that a death like that has happened in uh, very recent memory in the Senate. And, of course, we do know violence against magistrates happened periodically at Rome, yeah. especially in recent history. Yeah, maybe he should have thought that. I thought it was well read in that every time he came to one of the insults, he kind of stopped. And, and he lost all confidence. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Go <laughs> on. <laughs> um, and the others... And inconspicuously leaving behind him yes. they don't want to get Antony's wrath leveled at them. I really like the scene. I think it was the best way that you could dramatically show the essence of the Philippics because this is all we get of the Philippics, yeah. which are great, but you do not get the 14 speeches. It's a shame that you don't even get a bit of a speech from Cicero. We've seen him making a couple of speeches. He did it initially after Caesar was killed, you saw him affirm that he thinks that Caesar's decisions should be upheld mm. in the Senate, and he gets to say a few good things there, but you never really see him hit him hit his stride in the Senate, which and is... I'm pretty sure David Bamber could do it. Oh, yeah, definitely. But that's what we associate Cicero with. Yeah. And this is the closest that we're going to get to that sort of thing. And the timelines are really complicated here, and some of them are conflated, and that's mm. fine. But if they wanted Antony to have that violent reaction then they couldn't have Cicero there delivering it because he gets killed in a different context. So I guess that's why they have the speech read out. Mm. And then it is true 
to the spirit of it in one sense in that this this speech in particular wasn't a speech but a pamphlet it would have been read out in public yeah which would be interesting to see as well because it was delivered as a pamphlet which means it's meant for public consumption mm. so you could imagine the newsreader reading it out we did see the newsreader briefly by the way we haven't commented on that but he's in pretty much every episode at some point isn't he yes yes so he turns up at the end of this episode essentially saying that Antony has gone north to Mutina to lay siege with Decimus Brutus because he wants to dislodge I know more about this scene than the characters do in the show <laughs> I think they're missing a bit of context in that retelling yeah, of what's happening I, next and I wonder whether a casual viewer would notice or want to know more it's, it'd Maybe. be like why is Mark Antony laying siege to Mutina they don't make that bit really clear but the newsreader is there to provide a bit of exposition yeah because they have said when Antony I think it was when he said to Cicero I want to have Gaul mm -hmm. he said but that's already been given to Decimus Brutus yes so they could very easily slide that in yeah but hey yeah. Maybe, maybe we just want too much talk. But the other context that we get as well is uh, from Varinus's man, Mascius, who tells Pullo, oh, Varinus has gone north with Mark Antony. So Varinus has now thrown his lot in with Mark Antony. I would have liked to have seen that conversation, but I can see why they had to compress it further at this point, I guess, rather than draw it out for another episode. I guess they laid the groundwork for it, but you have to remember a few episodes back when Varinus, for all he's a gang warlord, is also Antony's man now. Mm. So it would make sense he'd go north with him. Yeah. Especially if... Uh, actually, I'm not clear. Do you think we get the sense that the place gets burnt down because Varinus isn't there? Or has he gone because he's lost his Oh, no, base? it gets burnt down because he wasn't there to yeah. manage things. This all happened in his absence. Well, I'm glad he's not a gang leader anymore. Mm. As for throwing in with Mark Antony... He's been Mark Antony's man since he left the military back in season one and it was Mark Antony who let him back in mm. and Mark Antony made him swear allegiance to him then. So he's still playing on that, I think, yeah. which is good to kind of keep that thread going at least. Yeah. Poor Varinus. His principles, as laid out in the first series would have led him to stand with Brutus and Cassius or maybe with Cicero. But ultimately he's loyal to but, his word. Yeah, but he's, yeah. Ma he's made that promise to Antony. It's mm. the kind of thing Antony can and will abuse because Antony wouldn't be loyal. So <laughs> if that's where Varinus is going, what's happening to Pullo? Oh, is this a quiz? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This um, is a quiz. <laughs> Where's his allegiance? Octavian. There we go. All right, so the setting of the Civil War. Yeah, okay. we've got seven episodes to go. <laughs> You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. And thanks also to our guest, episode director Alan Poole. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any friendly neighbourhood podcatching platform. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page. You can follow us all on Twitter. Alan Poole is at apool one I am at NightlightGuy. Rhiannon Evans is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. And the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards. So until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic. And thanks for listening. <laughs>